Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us in this latest episode of Chaser um, Takeaway In-Depth Interviews uh, with an expert on a topic of concern or question for British Army and Defence. Obviously, these are conversations between two academics and researchers. They do not reflect any view of the British Army or Ministry of Defence. And today we're discussing Russia. Why? Well, there's the hot potato of conversations on China, the strategic challenges it poses and where things might go. There's obviously the context of the pandemic that has brought a lot of domestic and international challenges. But the question of Russia has not disappeared. Its operations in North Africa, in the Middle East, as well as um, um, aircraft carrier movements, as well as jets and etc., have not really disappeared. And the same questions that we've been struggling with before the pandemic about Russia, how do we understand it, how do we respond to it, remain to this day. And we are thrilled to have Mark Galeotti with us today to unpack some of these things. You will know uh, his, a lot of work over the years on Russia and understanding Putin and his latest um, we need to talk about Putin is a great reference book for all of us to read and through and he's a man who dares to challenge a lot of stereotypes in Russia so we thought actually having Mark's perspective on Russia today and what it might mean next is really important for us. Mark thank you so much for joining us. Um, I suppose the first question is the most immediate one which is um, how is COVID-19 impacting Russia um, domestically? It's got a really high infection rate and fatality rate, obviously, as we can see. Um, and there have been a lot of reports about discontent towards Putin and how the state is handling this. But also, what, what, what might this mean for Russian policies and engagement outside of its borders? Economically, it's obviously going to have a toll. Is this going to alter its direction, make it more aggressive, make it more amicable? Um, or actually, is it same old, same business right after this pandemic? Yeah, it's interesting. At the moment, it's still very hard to know precisely what kind of impact it's going to have on Russia because their infection rates are high. Their death rates, though, are relatively low, even allowing for a degree of underreporting. But the point is, Russia is still, you might say, at a relatively early stage compared with us. So it, it, it's hard yet to see the, um, the trajectory. And there's some suggestion that they're already beginning to open up a, li a little bit too soon. So we'll see. I think the main impacts we've seen, first of all, Putin himself, uh, and again, this is one of the sort of, you know, contrary to the macho stereotype of Putin, the decision maker, when he doesn't really know the outcome, when he's faced with a challenge that he doesn't really understand, he tends to withdraw. Um, and very much this has been the case. You know, he has dumped the responsibility on regional governors, some of whom are doing a very good job, some of whom, frankly, are not. Um, and what we are seeing is already Putin's own trust ratings fall really quite dramatically because Russians can recognize a, a political abdication when they see one. So, I mean, I think that this is going to be a difficult uh, period politically for, for Putin to cope with. Secondly, yes, the economy is, is going to be badly hit. But again, we have to realize that the Russian economy is in a relatively good state in some ways. They've got, if you put it all together, something like five, six hundred billion dollars of, of reserves, not all of which is, is usable or whatever, but nonetheless, they have a very substantial cushion. So we're not going to see the Russian economy tank, but we are going to see it going into a hard period. When we look at what this is going to mean for the outside world, well, it's interesting because the first instinct was to try and use this for something of a charm offensive, a kind of, we're all in this together. Um, at the virtual G20 summit, Putin was saying, gosh, maybe this is a time for a moratorium on all sanctions, clearly self-interestedly. And we had these high profile from Russia with love um, medical aid missions to Serbia, to Italy, and most controversially to the United States. That's clearly just a tactical move. There is no real sense, and I think there will be no sense, so long as Putin is in the Kremlin, of a shift in overall Russian strategy and policy. So instead, I think the question is going to be this. Yes, the Russians are, are going to take a, take a hit. 
defense spending is probably going to plateau. It's not going to go down, probably. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, in, in, in other areas, they, they're just going to have a bit less money to throw around. But the point is, so are we. I mean, and I think what concerns me is this is a period in which we're probably going to see a retreat, not just for political reasons and not just by America. Generally, America, Europe, a lot of countries actually thinking, well, we need to concentrate domestically. Mm -hmm. And in that case, actually relatively small scale, relatively cheap interventions by the Russians. Um, we may well see because they can probably mobilize more quickly and worry less about domestic political opinion. So I think we're, we're going to see Russia being a little bit more um, opportunistically engaged in the outside world, but, but we shouldn't overplay this precisely because they, they won't have the money. It will just simply be a little bit of corruption here, maybe a few mercenaries there. Things to get our attention rather than anything that will really represent some major geostrategic shift. And it's amazing how they actually achieved a lot over the years with little expenditure, little military maneuver, and few proxies here and there, more than what we would imagine the cost of some of these operations are. But um, Mark, I think one question which is always in my mind is, how well do we really understand both the man himself, Putin, and the state? And the reason I ask that is, obviously, there's always going to be a tendency to see him as some sort of born villain. And he doesn't help, right? He's got the images of, you know, riding horses and fishing and, um, you know, a face that looks, you know, younger than it should at this stage. And so he's got making all that media-friendly figure. Um, at the same time, perception of the Russian state as even like mafia kind of understanding. This is some sort of a criminal network and a bit like a wild, wild west unfolding. And those stereotypes, those Languages that people use, like a mafia state or um, some sort of a villain figure, putting everything is all about him, um, often clouds our understanding. I mean, do we really understand, as the West, the state itself and where place of Putin is in the middle of that? I think too often we don't. Look, I mean, there are some extraordinarily good experts within various Western state structures. That, that is no question. But when, when we come to the sort of policymaking level, I think, again, we're still essentially... Um, hostages to the one-sentence soundbite explainer. And the trouble is Russia is incredibly complex. It's an authoritarian kleptocracy, yes, but not just that. It's also in part a, a, a democracy. Putin absolutely is surrounded by um, industrial-scale embezzlers. Um, and this is a regime which, as we've seen, will assassinate abroad and do all kinds of other things. But it's not just simply spectre from the Bond films. Um, it, it is a state that actually is also trying to engage itself within the modern world and is trying to push back against what it feels is an unfair attempt to, to marginalize it. This is the problem. There's just so many complexities, particularly with Putin. Um, um, and this actually matters because one people, some people say, well, does it really matter? We just look at the outcomes. But the key point that I think we really need to come to terms with is Putin is not a chess player. He's not a grand strategist. We so often get these lines of, oh, Putin's playing four-dimensional chess and we're playing drafts, or in the American media, of course, checkers. Um, but the point is, actually, we get so caught up in trying to work out, well, what is the plan, without realizing that, frankly, there usually isn't a plan. Actually, Putin and Putin's state, what it can do is it can very, very rapidly respond to perceived opportunities and threats more quickly than democracies can, because they don't have to worry about all this sort of you know, tedious public scrutiny um, stuff. And, and, and that's essentially how Putin operates. He is, and again, this is going into another kind of cliched explainer, but he, he's, he's the judo fighter rather than the chess player. Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to predict 10, 15 moves ahead how he's going to win. He goes into the ring, he has a sense of his opponent's strengths and weaknesses, he circles, he's looking for an opportunity. When he sees that opportunity, he can't really stop and carefully think about it, he has to strike. 
So I think that's the thing. We need to understand that Russia does not have a grand plan so that we need to stop trying to work out what the grand plan is. That tends to paralyze us. And, and that grand plan, Mark, or the drive or that vision seems to be a blando, both his own ambitions, like what is it that actually that he wants to achieve or the clique around him that holds power and economy and state structures in Russia wants to achieve, but also the fear factor, right? What is it that actually keeps them awake at night about their own personal position, about the position of Russia or the threats they see themselves facing as a nation or as individuals and their capabilities, right? So what is it actually possible within um, their economic, military, intelligence, muscle power? Um, so how do you think you blend all of this come together? The fear, um, the ambition and the capabilities, and how does that shape the grand plan, if you like, that they seek to aim and, and take opportunities along the way in that, that rough direction? Yes, I mean, if one looks at Putin and, and, and certainly the, the close clique around him, his, his, his gang, let's call them, um, it, domestically, in a way, they have achieved everything they could possibly want. You have this huge country with still a, you know, a relatively impressive economy, which is their piggy bank. Um, and they can use it for, for whatever. From that point of view, there is nowhere further to go. What there is, is the fear of losing it. And for, for people who have seen the so-called colored revolutions, toppling regimes in post-Soviet space, the Arab Spring and so forth, you know, they, they realize that actually you can be very powerful today, but that doesn't guarantee that you're gonna be powerful or indeed alive tomorrow. So the first and most absolute um, sort of driver is, is survival they are entirely connected with the regime and therefore it's not just their own personal political survival but regime survival but in some ways this also is a is a geopolitical issue um, from before he was president putin has been talking about the fact that as far as he's concerned russia is a great power and must be recognized as a great power and that's not because of its nuclear arsenal it's not because of its gdp or any other of these objective factors it is in some ways that this is russia's geopolitical birthright Russia is a unique civilization that, you know, suddenly Russians gave their lies in World War II, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, as a result, it's a great power because Russia. And from his point of view, this is important for, for several reasons. One, just purely on a personal one. I think this is now a man who is thinking of his historical legacy. Um, and very much the way he frames it was in his first two terms as president, his job was to drag Russia away from what it seemed to be almost becoming a failed state and in instituting a, you know, a strong, stable, centralized regime, which he's done. Now his mission is to restore to Russia its position on the world stage. Mm. As he put it, you know, Russia has been lifted up off his knees and clearly he's the one doing the lifting. But it's also part of his domestic legitimating narrative. Because at first he told the Russian people, look, stay out of politics and I'll make sure that your lives will get better. Year on year, things will improve. Your kids are gonna have a better life than you. And at first he could deliver, and most Russians were very happy to accept that. Now though, that's not the case. Now Russians are finding that at best, their quality of life has stagnated. And so the new legitimating narrative is, look, the world hates Russia. That's why we are a beleaguered fortress. That's why we need to all pull together. But on the other hand, not only are we surviving, but we are also reestablishing our rightful place in the world. It's not a very powerful legitimating narrative. Most Russians really don't care, but it's really what he's got left. So his aspiration is precisely to assert that Russia is a great power. And that means getting us to acknowledge that. And therefore, a lot of what he's out, is not, it's not that he has territorial interests, in my opinion. Crimea was a very, very specific uh, one-off. It was a piece of, of land that pretty much every Russian, even if they hate Putin, believe was genuinely Russian. 
There's no other aspirations, really. This is about a political struggle to get the rest of the world to, to recognize Russia as a great power, and a great power, frankly, conceptualized in very 19th century terms. Sphere of influence, a voice in every major global decision, and a voice means a veto. And also, a great power gets to break rules from time to time and get away with it, because he feels America has all of these. And frankly, America to an extent does. And, and Mark, one of the most, um, one of the things that I cherish about you is that you often have the courage to challenge the buzzwords that we throw in, especially in the defense community, right? So there was a time everybody was talking about Gerasimo doctrine. Well, researchers like you have said, well, hold on a second. Um, there is really nothing like that. It's not even clear. He wrote that famous article we're all alluding to, and it's already been there. So this is not a new doctrine. And the other buzzword, which obviously we use it, we integrate it a lot, not just in the UK, within NATO, is hybrid warfare. Um, and I know you've been very critical of that language, um, that obviously, it's depending upon who uses that language, it might mean multiple different things. But is that really adequate enough to capture um, the modus operandi or Russian activities and how they operationalize some of these ambitions at a full spectrum of um, the toolkit that they have to mm -hmm. come up with a strategic effect that they want to. Yeah, I mean, the, the fundamental problem with hybrid warfare is actually that every single war in history has been hybrid. It's only in video games that you win by killing every single one of the little en en enemy figures. You always win by breaking the, the enemy's will and capacity to resist. And particularly, I think, in the modern world, I think why, why I sort of have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about this is not only that it sort of tries to create this notion that there is something different and something separate, when actually what we should be calling hybrid warfare is warfare. Um, but also in the Russian case, particularly, it obscures the fact that, in my opinion, there are two very similar looking, but nonetheless very different approaches that have been taken. There's the military approach, and then there's the dominant civilian national security approach. The military, um, and this is what sort of Gerasimov was talking about, find themselves in a position, well, first of all, look, in the modern world, there are vastly more opportunities to mess with the enemy by non-kinetic means, whether it's in terms of spoofing their GPS signals, whether it's in the fact that you can actually track and maybe even send, as the Russians have done, text messages to their phones to demoralize them, whether there's the fact that we all live in, in one economic space, one information space, one technical space. And the Russian military, like, let's be perfectly honest, any military, particularly ones that contemplates expeditionary warfare, have been looking at how they can capitalize on that. Um, and that's part of, shall I say, preparing the battlefield. This is about how you ensure that by the time your, your little green men or your tank brigades get deployed, you have, if not already won the war, but tried to make the war sort of as skewed in your favor as possible. And when Gerasimov was writing that paper, though, he was in a way performing a role which is you know, as chief of the general staff and certainly not a man who has in any point in his career demonstrated a particular interest in the finer art of military theory. I mean, this is an exceedingly competent tank general, but we shouldn't put him beyond that. Um, he was also trying to reassure the Kremlin, a Kremlin that was increasingly worried about what it thought was our our hybrid war. They looked at the Arab Spring, they looked at the Colored Revolution. Later on, they were going to look at what happened in Ukraine in the Maidan revolution. And instead of seeing in those natural organic risings of people who are just fed up with corrupt, unresponsive, exploitative regimes, instead they always thought, who's behind it? And usually 
that the answer is the CIA. Except just as a little sideline, God bless them, they still feel that the Russian, that the Russians still feel that the Brits are their most subtle and devious of enemies. So I remember talking to one sort of mildly barking mad think tanker, very much who kind of did a lot of work for, for the, the, the Russian government, um, who said, that, of course, the CIA was, was behind the Maidan in Ukraine, but the Brits probably came up with the idea. <laughs> exactly, we, 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 we ought to find our comforts where we can. But anyway, the point is, Gerasimov was trying to respond to a Kremlin that was getting worried about that. And, and his article was really a, a sort of way of saying, look, we're, we're aware of this problem. Don't worry, the military is onto it. We have ways of responding. So keep sending the money our way. This was Gerasimov in his role as, in a way, chief fundraiser for the military. Um, the thing is, though, that obviously, so, so these are all, you might say, non-kinetic means being used as, as a, as a pre preparation. This kind of preparatory fire of the non-kinetic realm before your actual attack. Within the, the civilian national security establishment, who, let's be honest, are dominant within Russia, um, they seem to have come up with a different idea. And this is why I prefer the term political war, which is a term that was used by George Kennan, the veteran American scholar diplomat, and the architect really of early American Cold War thinking. And he described political war as the use of every instrument, legal and illegal, overt and covert, in the pursuit of national objectives, short of war, short of fighting. And I think what they have thought is, well, actually in the modern world, particularly when we're fighting democracies that are often gonna be inconstant and, and, and frankly, a bit, a, a bit wobbly, um, actually all these non-kinetic means of bringing pressure to bear can be not a supplement to war fighting, but an alternative. And I think that the problem for us is that in the early stages, these two approaches look exactly the same. They use precisely the same instruments, hacking, subversion, espionage, disinformation, and so forth. Um, but it's only later on that we find out whether or not there was ever actually a, a direct military intent. Mm. So I think this is why it's a really complex issue, and this is why we really need to look in detail. But we need to understand that every time there's a cyber attack or whatever, it is not because they're contemplating sending in the tanks. Yeah, and um, that's really important. I mean, obviously, the right language captures your perception, captures your um, how you gear towards responding to it, and how you imagine a response, or what the adversary is thinking. So it's highly important. Um, I suppose, Mark, um, just a final question. Um, I, I think I often hear three kind of different um, promotions of how we should handle the Russia portfolio, right? Um, so one of that is obviously um, the engagement line. Look, Russia and the West or Europe um, faces a lot of similar challenges like the Islamist extremism that they face, we face. Um, obviously, we need to work with them in Syria. Now they're active in Libya. There have been even some signs of their ambitions back in Africa again. They're clearly playing a large role in the Middle East and their UN Security Council members. So we really need to engage. We can balance this right because Putin is a deal maker is really good at compartmentalizing things look at what they're doing with Erdogan they're fighting against each other but they're also posing pictures together and smiling and and etc um, the other aspect the other one seems to be look we should just um, accept um, the fact that NATO is expanding in their borderland they're being threatened by it we're kind of tickling the bear and the bear is responding why don't we just basically let them you know whatever they're doing they have a right to do um, so basically NATO's ambitions or NATO's integrity or expansion is a threat, so we shouldn't go down that way. Just accept as where things are. And then the third one seems to be, and I think it emerged after Salisbury attacked and etc. Rightfully 
So we, look, we need to draw a line, right? So um, uh, since Georgia, since 2008, there's been a particular um, line of events that has been unfolding and more and more opportunities provided, more assertions, more risk taking on their part, and they're getting away with it because of where things are internationally at the moment. So we need to draw a line. Um, this kind of engage, ignore, draw a line, are these the right clusters to think about Russian challenge or are we better off drawing things from all of these things and coming up with a more kind of nuanced understanding of how we can approach the Russia portfolio or actually one of these are the sanest track that we should be walking on? No, I think, again, I, I agree that I think we, we, need, we need something a little bit, bit more nuanced. Um, on one hand, look, there were mistakes made in handling Russia, absolutely, 1990s and even in, in, into the noughts a whole series of terrible blunders. But the point is they've been made. And if one looks at Putin and his immediate circle, look, these are not people, in my opinion, who are gonna change their views. Um, this is, particularly, it's, I think it's a, it's a transitional generation. I mean, this is the last generation of homo sovieticus leaders, people who didn't just have an education in Soviet times, but their early formative career years. And then they went through this trauma of suddenly seeing a country that was one of the superpowers suddenly becoming this ramshackle, you know, fading, corrupt, sort of corrupt, collapsing state. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is the generation that thinks, well, where did it all go and who took it from us? They're angry, they're, they're, they're bitter, and they still have the memories of past glories. So we're not going to change them. But the point is, this is a generation that is coming to an end. And it, I'm not saying it's going to be one year or five years, but we actually have to think in terms of that there's going to be a new Russia after. So I think what we need to do is balance containing the potential damage that Russia can do now without actually forcing it into a position of long-term antagonism. Most ordinary Russians, frankly, do not hate the West. Quite the opposite, actually. They're, they're fairly positive. Um, every time that we, we, we go overboard, and particularly when we use kind of a sort of loose rhetoric about exactly this evil mafia state and so forth, we actually we, we lose points there. So I think we need to be trying to engage with the Russian people, making it clear we have no problem with Russia, we have no problem at all with Russians, we love them dearly. We have a problem with the Kremlin, and we have a problem with certain policies. And I think the trouble is we have for too long inverted the usual maxim of speak softly and carry a big stick. And instead we have shouted and lectured Russia while waving a small twig. So let's absolutely, where we can find common ground, and there are areas of common ground, um, fine, work with that. Not have illusions that somehow that's going to unlock some grand, you know, people keep wanting a, a reset. We're not going to have a reset. Let's just accept that. But at the same time, we need to absolutely demonstrate to a very pragmatic, ruthless regime that frankly doesn't have a problem with people pushing back. You mentioned Erdogan. Um, you know, they, they were furious when the Turks shot down that Russian bomber um, that was engaged in sort of operations in northern Syria. But they got over it. They said, well, okay, fair enough, because, because Erdogan faced them down. In this respect, though, precisely because the threat we face is, is, is from all these um, you know, cyber attacks and disinformation and assassinations and such like, we need to be thinking non-kinetic way. We have this extraordinarily powerful engine of solidarity in the form of NATO. Attack on one is an attack on all. However, historically, everything short of a straightforward military attack, you're on your own, guys. Oh, thoughts and prayers from your allies, but that's about all you can expect. That's what happened after Litvinenko, and frankly, Britain was, if I put it bluntly, screwed. After Skripal, we saw something very different, where, and to a large extent, this is a triumph of British diplomacy, there was this massive 
international wave of expulsions that absolutely caught the Russians by surprise. And you could see them, they were thinking, okay, is this the new normal? That we're now in a much less permissive environment. Um, end of last year, a Chechen was gunned down in Berlin by a, basically a gangster who clearly was working for the Russian state. Was there a similar attempt to internationalize it? Nope, the Germans, alas, took a very, very low key route. And I think therefore Moscow's thinking, huh, okay, actually, maybe we are back to, to the good old days. So I think this is the problem. We need to work out how as an alliance, not as individual countries, we can demonstrate that certain behaviors are unacceptable, but not just rhetorically, but that they will have implications that are serious and sometimes asymmetric. Sometimes it'll be a case of not, we'll expel a diplomat because after a certain point, big deal. But maybe it's, look, next time you do that, we're gonna give the Georgians 10 million euros to build up their counterintelligence service. Or next time, we're gonna give the Ukrainians a bunch more counter-battery radars or whatever it is that we think would particularly annoy Putin. So I think we need to be imaginative and asymmetrical. We need to be um, unsentimental about our, our chances of achieving some grand breakthrough while Putin is in the Kremlin. But we also have to realize that this is a transitional era and there is going to be a new Russia and frankly a new Russia that would like to be part of the West because it's terrified of China. We don't want to drive that away. Mark, thank you so much. This has been a truly um, rich conversation. We covered a large sway of domestic politics, foreign policy, the state and the drivers of it and it's been very informative. And to everyone who watched us and if you want to watch more of these discussions, um, please do visit www.chaser.org.uk.